Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler on Friday, June 9th here in New York City. Of course, joined by Richard Rushfield and Elaine Lowe in Los Angeles. Guys, can you see me through the smoke okay? Am I, uh, am I, am I doing all right? Is it still looking apocalyptic over there, Sean? Uh, no, thankfully, it's. Uh, I was out earlier, and it's. It, it, it looks better. It's still. It's just like regular haze now, uh, Lane, for June. So, how, how do you know that it's smoky on the east? I mean, isn't isn't the weather always uh, terrible? <laughs> when it when it looks like Dune, Richard, that's when you kind of know things maybe a little <laughs> a little off. Uh, All right. Although I had the thought this morning, I'm like. If this happened, like, or probably did happen, like in 1700, like people, people would have thought this thing was, I'm like, it explains a lot about maybe history to some degree about these weather phenomenons that were previously unexplained in earlier times. But uh, anyway, uh, we are doing better and getting better here in New York. And uh, we have Peter Kiefer uh, joining as well. Peter, you are in Los Angeles home as well, I believe. Yep. So we'll dive into your piece, Peter, uh, which I'm sure you have a, a lot of response from um, on Ari and Brian, which Richard, those are two beach boys, right? Is it, did I get that correct? Do <laughs> I miss uh, that? They, they, they were from the, the uh, forgotten members of Jan and Dean. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, but of course, first, uh, follow The Angler on all social platforms at The Angler. And uh, you can subscribe at theangler.com to get the full suite of newsletters and podcasts. And of course, the Anglers free Strike Guys newsletter gives you all the news uh, from the WGA picket lines to the latest with SAG-AFTRA inside the Hollywood executive suites and so forth. Uh, And you get Elaine's daily evening newsletter as well. Elaine, how's that go? How's the daily beat going for you? We're what, four or five weeks in here? Oh, yes. We're in week six, my friend. Week Uh, six. Oh, my. People are still marching along those picket lines. Made a (laughs) stop at Amazon Studios today, passed by Universal and Warners. Folks are still going thinner there are there's music there are scrabble lines today's lord of the rings day over at amazon may pay them a visit a little later i would imagine you will be there yeah you're leaving this podcast and going right to that i would imagine yeah exactly (laughs) um so again go to strikegeist.com totally free and uh sign up for that so kind of a fun week in many different sectors uh i kind of call it a you know uh, a week of shooting yourself in the foot, um, which first at Amazon, uh, Richard, try and hide your shock here. Uh, there was a bit of a blunder. Be oh. surprised to hear that. Uh, but on Tuesday, they announced uh, some brand new policies around advertising uh, with their uh, gamer streaming service, Twitch. Um, things like limiting the size of advertiser sponsor logos to 3% of the screen and uh, cutting out ads in the feeds of the gamers entirely, um, which is all money that Amazon just happens not to get a cut of. And the main ta- the main way that their talent, the gamers, uh, make money. Elaine, you're a big gamer, of course. So uh, you doing okay? Were, were you outraged at this? Were you tweeting on this? I used to be a big gamer back in the what? day. I don't really? know if anyone played multi-user dungeons, like text-based things back in the 90s. I was a very cool kid. Uh, not so much these days, as evidenced by my uh, still refusal to see Super Mario Brothers. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you were not among the the Twitterati uh, against yeah, this Twitch. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I just want to say I was talking to somebody yesterday, and it's like ads. Who knew ads would be such a big thing for the streaming business in 2023? <laughs> exactly. And they were trying to remove ads. They want to put them in Amazon Prime and take them out of Twitch uh, because you know what? They keep the money from Amazon Prime. They don't keep the money from Twitch. So hmm, follow that. Mm. Anyway, a uh, bit of a revolt there. And within, oh, 36 hours, that policy was in the dustbin and we're back to business as usual. So way to piss off your entire user base for 36 hours for no reason. Uh, the second being something that Elaine was 
slacking me about constantly this week. So I'm glad we finally, we haven't talked about this yet. That would of course be the PGA Elaine, the professional golfers association. You may not, you're probably not up to speed on this Elaine. Do you want a little recap for you? Yeah. Let's give us a recap. Cause you know what a huge golf fan I am. The golf and the tennis go into the hand in hand at the, at the country club Elaine. So we'll get to that in a second. But <laughs> Uh, anyway, after essentially a year of, uh, repeatedly trying to, you know, convince their players to remain loyal to the PGA and not defect for, in some cases, hundred million dollar signing bonuses at the new LIV golf league backed by the Saudi government and, uh, publicly slamming the infiltration of Saudi money into sports. They, uh, completely folded like a, a Samsung phone this week and, uh, said, Hey, Oh, wait, no, not for you. We'll do an about face and take that money. And we're going to merge the leagues without telling any of the the golfers they were doing this. Uh, did Project Popcorn teach us nothing, Elaine, about talking to talent before making, making a deal? I mean, it's almost as if it didn't happen. Yeah, I know. That was a, or must have been a real shocker. I saw the headlines. Everybody told me it was a shocker in the headlines, so I, I assume it was, Sean. What would have been the conversation you could have had with Tiger Woods, who I, I think turned down a billion dollars? Uh, At least, yeah, exactly. So, so uh, what... Uh... How could you? How could you cue that up uh, to well, to make it okay it. with him? <laughs> oh, so, oh, you're not going to make it okay with him, but it's a matter of how they find out about it, Richard. I think, which is what we've learned in Project Popcorn. It's not that we're not going to do this. It's that you didn't bother to give me a phone call or talk or anything about this ahead of time. You just literally dropped this on the world uh, as 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 we all found out at the same time. Um, the winner, of course, being Netflix, whose cameras were rolling on a uh, full swing, <laughs> their PGA documentary on Tuesday. So they were around a bunch of golfers as this news was breaking. So we will catch that uh, next year. Uh, Elaine, did you have a tennis gripe? Sorry, did you want to? I, I didn't. Want, I don't want to seed all the sports talk before I move on from this. Yes. Yeah, speaking of sports, uh, how is it that I was not able to watch the French Open this morning, the much anticipated Alcaraz Djokovic match, exactly when it started? Oh. I logged on to Peacock, which, by the way, I paid five dollars for yesterday Uh-oh. for the pleasure of watching this match, uh, only to log on and find out that it wasn't going to be streaming until eight a.m. Pacific when we were deep into the second set. And you know, the beauty of being uh, a guest on a podcast every week, Sean, is that I can now gripe <laughs> about my most minor sports complaints uh, at a public square. <laughs> yeah. Elaine's got problems with you people and you're going to hear about it. So that's essentially <laughs> Peter, anything on your mind you want to get off while we're here? You know, I, I watched just back to the PGA discussion. I watched the um, uh, interview with Rory McIlroy yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which was amazing. Uh, he was for people who haven't followed it, he was a, a a strong advocate for for resisting the entreaties of Liv and was sticking by PGA. He was sort of the face of the pro PGA, and obviously probably turned down some unbelievable sum of money to do that. Sure, and then yeah. he was saying, basically, he learned to your point, Sean. He was saying he learned about it when everybody else did, um, and it was like an exercise in watching a guy who was like clearly furious with what had gone down but knew that he had a new boss <laughs> or not a new boss necessarily, <laughs> well, but the paychecks situation. were going to be coming from somebody else. Right. So he didn't want to say that what he really thought, which was that I can't effing believe this actually went down, but it was a, uh, anyways, if you want to, to see somebody uh, tap dancing around uh, questions <laughs> that you know, that they're, that, that they would love to explode on, pull up the Rory McElroy interview that I, that, that was, that I think, I think it was yesterday or the last two days. It's just, Elaine, to your point, just baffling that this is happening at a, a professional organization like that, uh, which leads us to self-inflicted wound uh, number three. 
which is uh, allowing a reporter to do a 15,000 word, pro- <laughs> word profile on you in your first months on the job of a, a job you've never really done, um, as someone had pointed out <laughs> on Twitter this week. When has a 15,000 word profile ever come out positively, uh, which <laughs> I had a hard, a hard time ever recollecting? You'd think a journalist of all people would know that, Elaine. You know, the reaction to that was so swift. Uh, to be honest, I wasn't even done reading the 15,000 word article <laughs> before Licht got out as ousted. You couldn't even make it through in time. Uh, Peter, did you, did you finish it up? I read it afterwards and yeah, it was, it was long, but you know, I, 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 I'd love to hear more from Tim Alberta, the writer, about how it sort of unfolded. Because what I was, what I think I'd heard or read is that it morphed uh, after the Don Lemon stuff, and that they they were planning. I think they had pitched it that the story was going to come out much earlier than it did, but it became sort of this evergreen where you know how stories just sort of can collect dust for a while. Yeah. And I think in this situation, uh, Chris was thinking it was going to be one thing. And then these events unfolded that you couldn't tell. And then all of a sudden, the Atlantic and the editors were going, huh, we've got a we've got a really good story now. And then you can imagine that the PR people over at CNN were going, oh, my God, we are cooperate or not to finish this out or out of it. Yeah, exactly. And at that point, that this was supposed to be more like that Bella profile in The New Yorker. Is that what oh, you I'm, think I'm they sure were that's what they were hoping for. for. Yeah, yeah. They, they they always think like people say, oh, don't ever sit down with Tim Alberta again, and every, everyone will because they always think it will be different because it's me and I'm great. So you follow me <laughs> around, to, you you'd see how incredible I am. So so I'm not Chris Licht. So yeah. um, hey, Vanity and, Fair has followed you around, Richard. Did they ask to go to the gym with you, Richard, or no? I guess the juice. Did you decline <laughs> that request? Uh, I, that's I, I, I promised them. I, I I swore to them that if I ever go to the gym, I will uh, I will call them and they can come. <laughs> um, but uh, it it also shows you. I mean, this guy clearly had uh, sort of no preparation for for in his experience for for taking on this kind of big organization and managing something like this, and as testified by the fact that he leaves all his uh, ousted predecessors uh, loyal uh, loyal people in, in, and hides up in the attic away from them and lets them basically uh, run them muck in the organization. But David Zaslav, I think <clears throat> I think it's one thing in common of people who take over really big organizations like like Disney or, or Warner Discovery that you sort of trust your gut about who the people that you, you need to put your people in place. So you don't do sort of the obvious time server who's had the right management experience and come up the ladder and do it. So you, you want to put your people in place. So you really, you've gotten to this place and you really trust your gut about this person that you met at a party or has been close to you, um, like Kareem Daniel, or and you put them in roles they have no business being in because you you trust your gut on this person. And uh, trusting your gut uh, when you're a newly installed uh CEO is 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 probably always a bad idea. I, I mean, I felt that there was also just sort of a philosophical question that was brought up in that piece, and that which is about you know, can a news organization actually report from the center, you know, in in this political climate? And that was obviously what I think publicly, uh, Zaslov and Chris Licht were saying they wanted CNN to start doing was to move away from the Zucker years and you know get out of this sort of anti-Trump bashing and 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 try and go straight on news. And it, it's it, it's an interesting question of whether or not that idea is even feasible anymore and it, i frankly it, it, if if that's what they attempted to do we we now know that at, for, for certainly for cnn it's not 
really possible. The the second thing was the um the specter of Jeff Zucker just hung over Chris Slick's t- entire tenure. And uh and Jeff is he's known to be a masterful uh, leaker. He 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 works with the press. He has his his preferred journalists. He's just like a, a an absolute ninja when it comes to controlling the narrative. And I think Chris Licht tried to beat Jeff Zucker at his own game and it agrees to this big profile with his you know award-winning magazine in an attempt to sort of get the upper hand. And you know that's that was his downfall. You can't if you're going to square off against Jeff on his on in, in his sandbox. Good luck. And I think that what's that the, was what's a big incredible part of it. on the on the Zucker side is every story you read about CNN talks about the beloved Jeff Zucker, the hero of the the the, the rank and file and everything. In his time running NBC Universal, I don't think you can do a Nexus search. I don't think you will find the word beloved in any profile ever written about Jeff Zucker at NBC Universe. I I haven't come to a word like beloved anywhere close to conversation about Jeff Zucker in that time. But suddenly he goes to CNN and uh, he's he's beloved. And I what percent of beloved equals paying your big stars, uh, adding an extra million onto, onto their salaries is, is my question. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, the NBCU tenures long forgotten, Richard. Uh, you know, uh, and and he was at CNN for a long time. But still, yes, it's funny how your image can change over the years. Um, you know, there's this notion that news is a very traditional business and very salt of the earth people. And I'm like, it's a talent business. It's about talent and ego. And if you're not winning over the talent, you ain't winning. You know, my sense not having worked in proper broadcast journalism is that it's also just a different field when you're talking about broadcast and the way you treat talent, and the way you. Uh, platform your reporters than than print where we're all sort of True. nameless faceless <laughs> random writers you know but also it's, it's kind of hints at you know i somebody even there's a quote in one of the pieces but everybody and this is hollywood too everybody wants to kind of pretend like it's 2013 again and i'm like it's just the guys the, the business has all evolved here um i know we all want to just go back to a time whether that be in television or whether that be in, in cable news CNN is a major business problem, um, you know, and that their distribution is eroding by 7% a year. Uh, And I don't care how center of the road you get in your coverage, that ain't going to change that. Yeah, that's the other thing here. The the they talk about the Zucker era like uh, like like CNN was was riding high atop the world. It was it was a, 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 a fading network in a disintegrating sector. And uh, I, I don't know what success for Chris could have looked like, but just going down the road they were doing was probably the, the craziest thing you could have done. Yeah. Uh, Cause you're, you're guaranteeing uh, you're going to be, you're going to be gone soon. What's the, what's the, what, what we were talking about this, the, the, the average age of the viewers is, is, is definitely early sixties. Maybe it was even 65 at this point yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. If you just look at your, you're part of a disintegrating cable bundle. And within that your average viewers age is in, in its sixties. You just look yeah. at that business and say, well, that's going to be gone soon. And, you know, there's also this notion that's getting pinned on, I think, unfairly on on Chris Licht is, you know, CNN Plus wasn't his thing. Uh, it happened to he came in when it ended. But uh, to say that he had anything to do with that idea, you know, he was just the face of it who said it's over. But he literally started when, you know, they shut it down and spending 
300, 500 million dollars a year on this thing. Uh, you know, Zazov's the one who pulled the plug on it, but it wasn't like, oh yeah, that was going to be a good idea in three years. I mean, that probably would have been a real bad look right now. How many subscribers do you think that would have had in a year? at this point in the streaming business. <laughs> I don't know. Don't underestimate the draw of Jake Tapper's book club. You know, that, uh, <laughs> that had me all in on that, had that me it? all in right there. So I, yeah. was, I had my you wallet. Were like, out. Take was, my money. <laughs> take yeah. my money. Yeah. All right. Maybe I'm underestimating the, the book club crowd, but uh, yeah, they have to figure out like every other, like ESPN, which the media does cover in a business sense and all these other cable networks, what you're, life is off of the bundle and they've had seven to even 10 years to even think about this and no one has come forth with a plan i mean now we're at a point where the iceberg is just starting to really chip away we all knew it would but chris lick didn't have a vision for the future of the business that's seen and he wasn't a he was a news producer he wasn't even a you know a, new, a business background and now you have you know david levy coming in which presumably will be what his what he's you know tasked with and i think maybe they'll bring in just someone to run the programming versus putting in this CEO who look Zucker. I don't Richard, we joke about it, but I mean, he did run NBC or, you know, and he does have a, a business background in addition to running, you know, today's show and being a news person. So he kind of did meld together some background skill sets that are rare. There are very few, if any other people who have that journalist background, journalism background and business background that could lead a cable network into the, you know, the 2030s here. So that's kind of what I, you know. We're all kind of eyes on on Zaz at this point, Richard. You know, what's is there any hit to his reputation or Richard at this point, or I mean, or whatever you want to, you know, what's how does he come across or come away with uh, at this point in all this? He's got to pile up on a lot of different fronts here. Uh, he's become sort of the the face of uh, capitalist fat cat for, uh, <laughs> right. for the strikers. <laughs> sure, he's, he's run into the CNN battle. He, you know, he's still still blame him for uh, pulling Batgirl and taking Westworld off the service and all the, all these things. So he, he's kind of become the face of, uh, uh, of, of all that's wrong in Hollywood here, uh, fairly or unfairly. And uh, I, I think he will soon see the value that his, uh, his peers fee- see of keeping a, a low profile as a CEO. Instead of uh, party planning with Graydon uh, Carter and yeah. Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not not injecting, not not putting yourself front and center um in every story. And you know, I in fairness, he's a very dynamic presence. And oh you know, yeah. You know, in CinemaCon, how he came out in this big raging defense of uh of the theatrical experience, he you say uh, you know why hasn't why haven't any other CEOs done that? Why 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 is he the old? So he's uh, there, there's a lot of him that is like the kind of leader that 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 you'd like to see for Hollywood. But it's it's uh, you're putting a target on your the the worst thing you can do in Hollywood is seem like you want it too much. That's 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 the biggest sin in Hollywood, and uh, he's looking like that at the moment. You know what I think is peculiar that Zaz has become the de facto villainous face of this strike but warner's isn't when you look at it company wise it's netflix right and i think ted has really escaped a lot of that scrutiny because as has put himself in the spotlight yeah ted ted for years keeps a relatively low profile in terms of press at least he doesn't does very very few interviews very selective very controlled doesn't doesn't put himself uh right at the center of stories about about his parties or anything like that and and so he remains 
you know, kind of a hard figure for public outrage to draw a beat on still. Zaz is somebody who enjoys, I mean, he bought, you know, the Bob Evans house. He enjoys the Hollywood you know, of it. There's very few people or executives out there that really have that same kind of, maybe, argue maybe Jeff Bezos to some degree, but he's so removed from it at this point is the only other comp I can think of, of someone who really enjoys the Hollywood of it all, Richard. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you look at the, the, the counter example of it, uh, Bob Chapek, who, uh, mm. who didn't enjoy the Hollywood of it at all. And uh, never spoke to the press and never, and uh, he certainly didn't uh, fare too well. I mean, so what's the, the end, lesson here? What's the Goldilocks amount <laughs> that you're supposed to enjoy Hollywood profile about yourself? There you go. <laughs> Save your profile until you've, you have success behind it. Uh, to, there was success. And if your company is successful, uh, the Hollywood press will forgive you uh, anything. Uh, but if you're, promoting yourself while you're having trouble the vultures will circle quickly yeah there hadn't been a piece like this it wasn't like lick would be out in the street this week he would have had the summer until the election season which will all which can save anybody and in, in the news business in some regard so in two years you know the writer's strike is far in the distant rearview mirror and if Zaslav's plan works out and and uh, things are great at Warner's and their debt is paid off and then there's many will be seen as the greatest genius and innovator to ever come to Hollywood. And if they're drowning in debt and and uh, and still throwing everything overboard and looking for a buyer and can't find one, he'll be seen as, uh, you know, the, the biggest display of hubris uh, that ever came along. Yeah. We'll see, as we always uh, say here, Richard, uh, but one per- or two people that all of these people we just mentioned uh, definitely call as soon as they get the job uh, are Ari and Brian. And you did a very in-depth profile of both of them. Why don't you set up uh, the piece for us uh, at the Ankler this week? Yeah, I mean, I've been working on it for a while. Uh, and I set out uh, basically um, to try and examine these two uh, sort of uh, super agents, these titans. And with the idea being that Hollywood has... Um, been at various time periods in its history has been assigned to a, a particular leader of the industry. And I think it's pretty well understood that at this point, it's sort of the, we're in the era of, of uh, Ari and Brian. And, right. and yet, we should say who they, who they are for those oh, who may course. not know, yes. Peter, of course. Apologies. Just, apologies. Know. Apologies. Yes. Uh, of course, we're talking about Ari Manuel, who is the CEO of Endeavor came up as a, a, a very, very influential and powerful talent agent. He still is a talent agent, uh, but now he oversees a rather sprawling empire of of, of companies that includes um, uh, IMG, uh, he, uh, UFC, and they, they they just acquired or in the process of, of acquiring that WWE. And uh, the other gentleman is Brian Lord, who is one of the three co principals of the Creative Artists Agency. Brian is sort of the top agent of the moment for sure, and at the top agency. And they came up together. They're both they're both men are sixty two years old. Right. Um, but they've charted very different paths, both for themselves and for their companies, and they really don't like each other very much. And um, I just thought it could be an interesting time to do a little bit of a case study on these two extremely uh, complex and influential men. Originally, I had been um, I'd started on the idea because there was a a, a burst of of poaching of clients back and forth. Mainly, it was more CAA um, poaching some of the A-list clients from WME. And that happens a lot, but there was, an, there was a real flood at, uh, about starting around the new year. And um, so I was kind of using that as my news hook. But then um, 
like the journalism gods looked down on me very kindly. Um, and Ari Emanuel sat down for an interview with Freakonomics' podcast uh, a week ago. And in it, he basically gave me my lead because uh, he he went out of his way to make sure that all the view, all the listeners to the Freakonomics podcast knew how much he despised uh, CAA and Brian Lord and how he looks down on them as uh, as as competitors. Essentially, calling and, them they inherited Tiffany and they and they turned it into Walmart. Exactly, that was right? yeah. He said that the Michael Ovitz, you know, the form the founder of CAA, he handed he handed them everything, and that they've 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 turned this sort of precious. Uh, brand into something more akin to Walmart and all due respect said, to Walmart, of course, all due respect. Yes, exactly. And how um, they're the best competition because, you know, he he would pay their salaries because he's been, you know, with the, with the, you know, uh, implicit understanding that he's been running laps around them now. So right, right. it was very sort of uh schoolyard taunting. Right. Um, if this is an executive doing a professional interview and it was very much down to like a knife fight kind of like part of the interview, right? In a, in a sense. Of- yeah. Oh yeah. And it was funny because I don't think the, I don't think um the pitch for the podcast was supposed to be anything about CAA. Or, oh yeah. Or, no, or- it was, an, it was almost an aside of the podcast really. I mean, what the CAA and, and, and WAE, it was about Endeavor and his life and everything else. And this is how he's one built, area. Yeah. And how he's assembled this, right. this sort of, amazing, uh, amazing you know, company. 21 billion, potentially $21 billion uh, a company. And so yep. it was about deal making and, and, and empire yep. building. And yet, Ari couldn't help himself when um, Stephen Dubner, the interviewer, gave him a chance to take a shot um, at uh, what he likes to call the guys down the street. Actually, it's fun. I didn't get this in the piece, but they almost never refer to one another by name or oh, even really? the other agency. They only say the guys down the street. That's um, <laughs> so. But, you know, they're, they're both incredibly influential. They're both very successful, um, but they've taken very different paths um, and. Effectively, uh, Brian Lord and, and CAA over the past about 12, 15 years, uh, uh, let me start by saying they've, they've both taken on huge amounts of private capital. And what they've done with that money is what what differentiates them. Um, totally. CAA um, has effectively continued to sort of double down on talent representation um, as, as their core business model. And they really haven't strayed uh, too far from that. And they've really put a gap between them and everyone else as far as their their client list. And they're doing very sophisticated deals in sports, um, in, in 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 corporate branding. They're you know in naming rights. Um, yeah. So they're very successful. Ari and um, the Endeavor guys they went out and bought like something like I think it's twenty different companies. Um, the most recent one was the really big one, which was WWE. And they're in the process of trying to merge uh, UFC with WWE, which will create, you know, a $21 billion, a second publicly uh, traded company that Ari is going to be overseeing. So this will be his second publicly traded company. So the idea is like there's the both of these guys wield huge, immense amounts of power, but they, they do it in different ways. And they're also very, very different people. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. That strategy shift, it's. As you said, CA, and I want to get to this point also about kind of diversifying from Hollywood itself. As you said, there's sports and there's a lot of money in this stuff too. This isn't just like these aren't side hobbies of things. It's like these are real revenues. So when things like a writer strike comes along, they are not as exposed to this as they would they were in 2007 or certainly back in the in the in the 80s for sure. So there are, there are a lot of business benefits to this as well that are affecting you know the larger topics in the in the industry. Um, and also what CA what they are, as you said, a core representation, we represent clients. So that client could be 
the sports league. It could be, you know, Tom Cruise. It could be, you know, a fashion designer. It could be, you know, what, but we represent entities and their deals and what RE with Endeavor, I mean, WME still does that, but they've also bought the things that have rights to sell. So they've added on top of that, they're primarily still working in deals and rights, but now they own the things that are benefiting from it. So instead of just taking the cut of the deal, you get all the money from the deal because you're representing it and you own it in a sense is maybe a way to kind of boil that down of different philosophies there. Yeah. No, no, you, that's 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 totally accurate. And and what makes Ari's strategy and, and Endeavor's strategy seem like at, at this particular moment seems so prescient and smart is that you've got the this transition to streaming, which is causing all sorts of you know uh, pain and disruptions. Obviously, we're, the, the writer strike is one of them, and there might be another guild going out on strike this summer. So right. it, the timing of of the story right now, uh, you know, I think crystallizes this notion that. Um, Ari's radical diversification makes him look particularly um, um, smart. Now, whether or not he, no one would, I don't think anyone would say that he would have predicted this, but I mean, he does deserve credit uh, for sure for at least building and putting together. He's got a ton of assets now and he owns these things and he's sort of shielded and protected the company from, you know, uh, you know, the unforeseen future of, of media and entertainment. And he's, so in that way, he's done an excellent job, but to, to to CAA's credit, they are they are still kicking ass in the talent representation game. It's like I mean, they're both both companies are doing very well. It's just they're doing it in a different way. Yeah, this notion you really dove into a bit of the of poaching, which is Richard. I, I was curious for your thoughts on this, and you know, certainly coming up in the business myself in in the nineties and two, maybe two thousands, I think poaching was such a a topic that was discussed about stealing clients and a part of the culture. And I feel like with these kind of <laughs> I say boring or globally diversified companies. Now these kind of stories of your kind of don't come out that much, but as to Peter's point, I mean, there's still, this is still, still happening a lot and a big deal, Richard. Uh, Peter, Peter pointed out, uh, uh, Charlie's, uh, Theron, Charles uh, Theron. Yeah, of course. Theron, yeah. That, that how uh, Brian Lord, uh, stole, stole her away from our, even though, uh, she was a very a long uh, time close friend client. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I think one thing that, that's changed a little is that the the agencies have gotten so huge they're now signing people much earlier in their career and you had the it, it used to be that stars would would be represented by a smaller agency and once they popped up uh uh caa would swoop in and steal them away but caa and are are are, are signing people at really at the entry level now and identifying uh who they think are are stars at very early point that they never would have been involved before so you have people much more um kind of enmeshed with it with the agency from uh from from the the start is uh what wme would say about having this constellation of uh of all these other things is they say well we're create we're we're creating more opportunities for our clients like i think they did feel early on that uh that you know to be a star and to to, to really realize the value of your stardom you're going to have to look much beyond um, just your just your your fees for appearing in a in a in a, uh, in a film or, or your acting your acting fees. That you're going to have to look at a, a much bigger world. And they that that they were saying we will, you know, now you can have a uh, a rodeo riding uh, appearance career or whatever the heck they do. And all the critics would say, how well do those things really fit with with the career of a of a young actor in Hollywood? But uh, 
potentially, you know, in the best case scenario, if you're you're building a career and you're enmeshed with these different brands in various ways, it makes it much harder to just walk away from all that. Yeah, I mean, I think the to Richard's point, if you look out there, when I was doing the reporting, the the name that came up as far as what the model is is Ryan Reynolds. That's yeah, that's what I was exactly it came in my mind as well. Yeah, and, and you know, he has done. He's been. He's just done an expert job. Uh, uh, and he's a very bright guy by himself, but he's been well served by his agents. He's at WME, and um, but you know he's got his the Aviator Gin, which was you know a massive business. He you know he's extended himself into uh, European soccer and had huge amounts of success there. And I think that if if you were to talk to his representatives, that's that they've been able to help facilitate uh, much of that on his behalf. And so now the question is, how many people? in their you know client list are ultimately you know a worthy or capable uh with their with their brand to be able to pull that off you know they everyone i think all the a-listers would love to think that they are i, yeah. I don't know brian, brian I, works his ass off and ryan works, works his ass guy. off and he's yeah, very he's bright a, and likable he's and the poster and boy think, but for this stuff for a reason you know yeah. uh you know so to be in, Brian, in ryan's defense but they do enable that in a way but then you know elaine just kind of brings this back to a little bit of the strike element to it too where if you have Ryan Reynolds, Ryan's bring that's bringing a lot of money for WME, you know. And if, how much focus do you put on those kinds of careers versus the staff writer on a TV show, you know? But it's not what it once was, Elaine, and that's kind of not the core of what's going on. But it's definitely an element of it's in the background here a bit. Would you think, especially after the end of packaging? I mean, well, it's certainly helpful for these agencies when they're diversified, right? I mean, you you have some of these smaller agencies, which primarily represent writers, and they're taking a much bigger mm-hmm. hit right now than a WME or a CAA, which are way more diversified and represent not just writers, but also people with hands in things that are not strictly scripted TV. Yeah. Um, and I think the interesting thing is seeing how many of those other revenue streams there are really diving into now, even with those writers of saying like, hey, well, if you can't write, yeah, what else like can we a do? Podcast or write a novel or something else, right? Yeah. So in terms of the talent list, though, Peter, you know, so CAA, you've, you've kind of encapsulated it, but you know, from Brad Pitt, Tom Hanks, to Tom Cruise, George Clooney, James Cameron, uh, Bruckheimer, uh, you know, to Beyonce and Bieber and Harry Styles and Springsteen, but you know, this notion of kind of we talk about building stars on here, and it's like a lot of names over fifty there, and a lot of names who. I mean, some of and outside of music, which is, you know, styles and which is always going to be younger. But, you know, the movie star business is also kind of in this interesting place with CAA to a degree. Is that kind of coming up or any oh, yeah. thoughts on that? As you For sure. That, that came up in. And in, in if you are um, if your strategy is to double down on the talent representation game, you're going to have to contend with the, 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 the fact that it's it's getting harder and harder uh, to create new movie stars. That's a. That's going to be a problem, you know, and also this goes back to the streaming disruption and this idea that it's very hard to create a movie star. Netflix doesn't really create movie stars. They just piggyback off of already existing yeah. movie stars. Right. And I think this gets back to this notion of of, of trying to eliminate uh, the marketing budgets, which was a core premise of, of what uh, Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos were trying to do is that the, the marketing budgets were so outrageous for a film and uh, franchise, their their model largely was about let's get rid of that, and, and that will be a but that'll save us unbelievable amounts of money. But what you're seeing now is that that marketing budget served a purpose, which was right. it created, indiv- you know, it created movie stars. You take take Austin Butler as an example. 
he's now a bona fide, I think a bona fide movie star, but it took the apparatus of, 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 of Warner Brothers and all the hype and marketing that they spent on, on that film to, to break him into that realm. So it is something I'm sure people inside CAA and William Morris are discussing. By the way, we we have to mention that UTA is is a is a yes. really serious player in all this too. I didn't I focused on the piece on on these two gentlemen, but we gave some space to talk about UTA. They're 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 in the game just as much as everyone else, uh, and and they're poaching people as well. So it's it is happening. It's it's it is a blood sport, and it's not going to slow down. Um, I just think there's there's larger existential discussions to be had about what it means to be you know, A-list talent and where is that going to, what's that going to look like and what are the conditions for that in 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah. And what's the approach to agenting? And that's also something you kind of, at least you address where, you know, Brian's that kind of white love service of call me and Ari's much more of a, Hey, I'll get the deal done. But these are your, my team is very much more uh, seem to be empowering that call it whatever next generation of talent at William Morris, whatever it was, but that they're two kind of different approaches to those A-list clients in a sense, Peter, right? Right. Within WME, the feeling is that Ari is a, the ultimate delegator. He he wants to spend, He has. he's a very busy guy. He's got lots of decisions to make across that portfolio of companies. He still makes the calls. He can still help sign people, but then he, he hands them off to um, the team of agents that are underneath him. And he basically tells them, he's like, look, if you need my help, I'm here and available, but right. don't call me every day. About this stuff, like make sure it's really, really important. I will. I'm I'm here for you, but like do your job. It's um, a more it's a more brusque uh, version of the Ovitz <laughs> model that o- yeah. Ovitz once he once he signed someone, he would slowly introduce like he would say, "Oh, I have this colleague who's going to just sit in on this call," and then the the colleague would be on the next call and the next call. Then some yeah. one day Mike wouldn't be on the call. And it would just right. be them, and then and then you'd realize it had been two years since you talked to Mike. So, but it was yeah. very subtle. Where, yeah, and then and whereas whereas I think Brian really enjoys um, mm. a, a being a, a, a talent agent. He really he's happy to show up at big red carpet events. He's involved in literally the development of some of the shows that his top talents are, are in. He's getting his hands dirty in a way, and still enjoys and revels in that. Um, in a way that I don't, I think Ari will, but she, he's just, he's on, he, he, he's thinking about so many different things. He's like, like I said, in the story, he's, he's really taken to becoming an entrepreneur and a disruptor. And it's not to say that CA hasn't diversified its company. It just hasn't done it in the same sort of swing for the fences, acquisitions, uh, and big bets that, that, that Ari and Endeavor has. And just one kind of final thought, though, there's, you know, that these names have endured. They're Ari and Brian, you know, for a reason where we talk about, you know, Zaslav, the Bacchus, to Chapik, to names that, you know, Kareem Daniel, these things, you know, kind of come and go. But this is, you know, these guys have, to say Jeremy Zimmer, UTA, there's other, a few other people in, the, in this boat here for sure. But they've been the first call for anybody doing any business in Hollywood or even now into sports or whatever it is. If you're a new in this business or want to get into this business, these are still I mean, top of the call sheet in a sense, and this has been away for a long time. It's pretty amazing that they right, that it still exists. They have been it's running still... this business since Basic Cable was the, the <laughs> right. Uh, was right. I mean, it was pre Sopranos that they uh, you know Netflix didn't even exist. It's it's sort of the only corner of Hollywood where that kind of uh, continuity. Yeah, I mean, actually, in in that Freakonomics interview, 
uh, Ari, uh, he shared like his his morning routine. Yeah. He's obviously <laughs> in amazing shape. He's on that Mark Wahlberg thing, which is yeah, a you're right. That's exactly what I thought too. Yeah. No, yeah, I think that they like wake up time. They like swap notes back and forth to figure out who can make the most grueling, you know, <laughs> routine before 4 a.m. And you can see it. The guy looks great. Looks and great. so and I think yeah, Brian, yeah. Brian's got he's got yeah. some gas in his tank, too. So I don't know, man. A great piece, Peter. A lot to dig in there. Again, you can check it out over at the antler.com. Great, great job there, Peter. We really thank enjoyed you, it. Um, so, Lane, I'm going to shift over to an organization that seemingly didn't shoot itself in the foot this week uh, to wrap out being the DGA. I guess we're awaiting the final vote from members now. What's where are we at on the the deal timeline here? So the DGA came to a deal very close to midnight or very late Saturday night, and that was <laughs> right. announced then. Uh, and then their membership bad. now uh, has until June twenty third to vote yes okay. or no on this deal with the AMPTP. Uh, it was largely expected, right? Like I don't think yeah. anybody really expected the directors to go on strike. What was it? The last time they went on strike, where they went on strike for like 12, 12 minutes or something? Yeah, in the 80s? exactly. So the organization that never went on strike did not go on strike. It's not really a, a grabbing headline. Yeah, n- not a real history of of going straight for the labor action. Um, but the directors I've talked to, or, you know, it's only a small handful of them. A lot of them say they, they thought the deal was pretty solid. Uh, they liked it. Uh, they're going to be voting yes. Of course, you have a lot of loud dissenting voices on Twitter. Uh, yes. I'm curious to see how representative of the membership that is. Uh, and a contrast, of course, to SAG, which has voted on a strike authorization, which doesn't mean that they'll go on strike, but which means that they can now bring that to the table because they only have about three weeks left until their June 30th deadline to try and hammer out a deal with the AMPTP. So I think the... And I know, Richard, you hate the sentiment here, but the, the <laughs> sentiment from the handful of people I've spoken to is that the is that SAG is much likelier to strike than not. Uh, and, and I, you know, I was talking to somebody yesterday who actually like kind of hopes that they go on strike and feels like it'll add more pressure that way to get things done sooner versus if they do come to a deal by June 30th. So I don't know. I, I think the thinking kind of goes both ways on that. Yeah, the thing about this DGA deal, which I noted in, in the wake up this morning, but you know, someone who tracks the trades every day and all the deal news, it's been pretty quiet for a couple of weeks. And yesterday, deals are getting announced again for we've attached this actor to this this movie and this script, and we've ordered this show because they know they'll have directors, and what they're not doing is putting a start date on it because they don't know the actors will be <laughs> will be you know uh, working as of Ju- uh, July first, but. It has seemed to grease the wheels a little bit of the Hollywood machinery, knowing that this deal is, you know, presumably done, um, which for a while there, everybody was just really holding tight and doing nothing, Elaine. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And uh, in New York, as I understand it, picketing has stopped this week because of the Dune-style apocalyptic haze that you guys are experiencing. uh, Yes, they evolved. The Yankees didn't play. Like, you know, everything was shut down here in New York. Yeah, and SAG is, of course, in a... My favorite term, uh, the media blackout, which uh, there's a joke in there somewhere, Elaine, but I'm just not going to go for it. <laughs> uh, so we probably won't hear too much uh, at this point, I guess, right in terms of the next few weeks here. Right, exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll see how, you know, you mentioned sort of things, the the machine wearing back into action a little bit, how mm. this is going to affect production now that there were zero scripted TV permits this week in L.A. It's the first time right. it's been brought to zero during the course of the strike. 
Um, so when things finally get back in action, uh, let's see how, how, how much it pushes back the schedule for the rest of the fall and everything else that had been already been in the works. Yeah. New York had similar numbers, you know, or similar effect here in New York as well in May of the, of the drop in permits. Um, and that, you know, if these new projects, if, if SAG does make a deal and presumably, you know, the, the subtle nudge from the studios in making these deals, announcing them is like, we will shoot without you writers. If we have actors and directors, you know, is, is essentially what that is subtly saying around town. I'd be very curious to see how many things shoot in New York and LA in the, in the late summer or fall. If that, if that becomes the case, how many yeah. productions really will, we're going to Ireland, we're going to, you know, whatever the other tax breaks they can get. It may be Although a conversely, if SAG decides to strike, then everything's going to come well, then that's the, to a total halt. And then we'll be the in big... a double strike zone and strike guys will be extra busy. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, three weeks until a big cavalcade of who knows what. And uh, a deadline did have a piece uh, last night, which reminded me, which I was kind of a little foggy on. But when SAG, if SAG, you know, goes on strike July 1st. There's no not even, no shooting clearly either, but no publicity. So every movie, every summer movie coming out in July, bye August bye FYC campaigns will not have yeah all the FYC campaigns. Tom Cruise does not get his big uh, Mission Impossible premiere, so he may will a deal into existence so the Mission Impossible <laughs> press tour can continue. But all of that comes to a, you know a full stop. So no more morning show appearances. No you know nothing. So everybody all of a sudden takes a uh, a flash campaign you know attitude toward marketing where it's just ad spend ad spend ad spend at a time when there's not much to watch on television in July and August um so the sag strike is not just going to impact production but you know and then things like comic con forget it you know that's not happening so there won't happen you know there won't have any panels uh, going on at comic con and well, we got 3 weeks to find out so something good might come with this <laughs> oh richard <Wow>. boo <laughs> <laughs> have, you voicing, have you survived a comic con in july i have i'm just voicing twitter here really I'm just, uh, twitter but uh, the twitter contingent is booing from the stands i love uh, comic con i know <laughs> namely, namely elaine who's gonna has her yeah i've been to several comic cons richard uh all, all for work uh for hbo so and it, i uh get my 10 miles of walking in a day and I, you know, the best <laughs> exercise I probably had in, in a long time. So uh, <laughs> yes, I'm very familiar with, with the comic-con and, and how, how much disappointment there will be if there is no talent uh, there this year. So more to come again, you can always uh, keep up with the latest there at strikeguys.com. sign up for the newsletter there. And Elaine will keep you in the know every evening uh, over at the movie theaters. Richard, are you a transformers man? Uh, I, I have not been a, uh, Transformers devotee. So the, you're the not a buzz... Transformers completist, Richard. Completist. I, oh my. I, I am a Michael Bay, uh, completist. Uh, yeah. uh, there you go. The, uh, the buzz I hear is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is good on this one though. Uh, yeah, I, I in that world here. that it's, uh, sort of a reset from the, uh, from the Bay era and that, uh, Transformers with a little more heart and uh, coherent storytelling. Uh, I think for Paramount, there's reason for optimism. But Elaine, maybe you can enjoy Transformers on your Apple Face computer. So maybe that's the way to go about it. Oh, my $3,500 face computer. Yeah, that'll do it. I wear glasses. How's that even supposed to work? I will. I'm going to give a shout out to Peter Kafka's uh, Recode Media podcast. He sat down with or talked to uh, Lauren Good at Wired, who had a first person experience and laid all this out exactly. So from the eye scans to the face scans to the ear scans to the fitting to 
how what lenses you might have to put on your eyes if you have glasses to use this $3,500 product that was going to change the world here. So uh, recommend that over at, at Recode Media. But uh, yeah, you know, Peter, are you uh, in or out on Vision, was it Vision Pro? Is that the catchy name that we have here? I'm a hard out. They're a hard out. Okay. <laughs> and Richard's wearing his right now, I'll lean out the whole time. It's, uh, so <laughs> that's, that's really been man of the future, Richard Rushfield. Uh, just had, had to get it right on it, right, Richard? Absolutely. Can't wait to just walk around with big face full of goggles. Uh, have any of those wearables? Has any of them even like remote? Is, what's the what's the most successful version of this? That what's the what's the what's the comp for this for success for these things? Well, Elaine? Google had theirs, right? And well, Google Glass Snapchat had nowhere. Snap glasses, I think, still exist. More of a novelty. Yeah, they're around. Uh, and then I mean, Meta is the only one. Oculus is you know, which is. The sales have not been off the chart, and Zuckerberg certainly chimed in uh, yesterday, saying, "You know, ours is the the headset of the people. Damn it! And uh, <laughs> it's only five hundred dollars. So <laughs> it's, uh, forget these thirty five hundred dollars fancy pants over here, and uh, you know, look at our. So nobody's million. in on a face computer here between uh, the four of us. Okay. You know, going to say this is a twenty thirty podcast topic for me, but um, <laughs> we should. I, I, I can honestly say Apple goggles cost more than my car. And that's, <laughs> and I'm not kidding when I say that. And I'm not, I am not proud to, to share that with all of our listeners, but it is the truth. That's a, I mean, that's not a good look on either side there, Peter. I got to no. say, I'm not sure that was, I know. My, reveal, my, my wife, my, my daughter won't even get in my car anymore. It's actually kind of embarrassing. I, I have to upgrade. I have to upgrade. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'll be covering all of the box office action uh, on Monday in the wake up. From Transformer numbers to Spider-Man week two uh, to Little Mermaid international updates, which everybody's now very much attuned to to see if that um, even break even is kind of a, a, an odd thing to even say at this point. It probably will, but the, the upside there is definitely in question. So anyway, wrapping all that up uh, on Monday uh, in the wake up, you can get that at theangler.com. Subscribe there to get it. A pleasure to see all three of you in real life over Zoom. We will do an Apple Goggles podcast sometime in the future. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week.